Hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm Dale, the Real Seeker, and we're picking up our Jesus Mythicism Refuted series, part four. This is specifically part 4b, where we're going to pick up and deliver the final uh, part of the program talking about the third and final rabbinical text, the Trial of Jesus text, uh, and see if this is uh, reliable and proves that a minimal historical Jesus existed. All right, enjoy. Okay, what's an, uh, let's try a third uh, potentially reliable historical reference to Jesus in the rabbinical writings here. Okay, so this is going to be the last te rabbinical text that we look at, and our last chance for a success uh, in terms of proving a passage uh, establishes the historical Jesus on a balance of probabilities. This is going to be the famous one. This is the one that Mike Lacona mentions. It's having to do with the resurrection. Gary Habermas mentions it. Uh, all the Christian apologists mention this text about the trial of Jesus. So here's what it says. Uh, and this comes, sorry, this comes from the Babylonian Talmud from the Tanaic period, 70 to 200 AD, it was written down. Uh, it's from the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a. And it says this, quote unquote, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, and Yeshu HaNatsri, so Jesus of Nazareth, was hanged for 40 days before the execution took place. A herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. This is incredible. Uh, so this is a, a brief account of the death of Jesus. Um, and there's two references here to Jesus being hanged. Uh, and this is interesting because this is the exact same term that the New Testament speaks about in terms of crucifixion with Jesus. So, you know, Jesus is said to be hanged in the Greek. That's uh, kremomenos uh, in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Uh, the two males in the Gospel of Luke uh, that were killed at the same time as Jesus. In Greek, that's kremas uh, thenaton, uh, and that's for the term used in Luke chapter 23, verse 39. So the term uh, crucified here is much more uh, a common reference to this event, whereas hanged is a variant expression referring to the same fate. So it's interesting that the rabbinical text is matching precisely the terms used for Jesus at the time of the Gospels. Okay, so what are the things that we learn about at face value from this text uh, in the Talmud? Well, we learn, one, the fact of Jesus' death by crucifixion or being hanged on a tree, Gospels confirmed. Two, the time of this event, uh, which is mentioned twice as occurring on the eve of the Jewish Passover, Gospels confirmed. Uh, additionally, we're, and this is a bit of a su surprise, it's not that we, independent of the Gospels it seems, that three, for 40 days beforehand, it was publicly announced that Jesus would be stoned. And this is not specifically recorded in the New Testament, although it is certainly consistent with both Jewish practice and with the report that this had also uh, been threatened on at least two occasions. Uh, in uh, the Gospels, right? So prior, Jesus was threatened with being stoned uh, in John chapter 8, verses 58 to 59, and John chapter 10, verses 31 to 33 and 39. So that's kind of related to four, the fact that Jesus was judged by the Jews 
to be guilty of sorcery relating to Jesus' miracles, gospels confirmed, and spiritual apostasy in leading Israel astray through his teaching, gospels confirmed. Okay, fifthly, it's also stated in this passage that since no witnesses came out in his defense, no one came forward to defend him, that he was ultimately killed. Gospels confirmed. Wow, what an amazing text here. And, you know, it's, it's also interesting because uh, there's no explanation provided as to well, why wasn't Jesus stoned? Why was he hanged instead of getting the prescribed punishment of stoning that they were going on about for 40 days before he was sentenced to be executed? And um, this provides some plausibility in the fact that yeah this relate this tradition goes back to oral tradition at the time of Jesus or there right after his execution because they wanted to stone him but with the Roman involvement they had to go on an ad hoc basis and that's why they ended up crucifying him without specifically kind of mentioning well why or how that happened it was just assumed everybody knew it was a rush job the Romans were involved so we it was done that way now, there's another early reference here in the Talmud that speaks of five of Jesus' disciples. It's in the same Babylonian Talmud, Samhedrin 43a uh, part, and it speaks of Jesus having five disciples. It recounts their standing before judges, just like Jesus, and they make individual decisions about each one of these five disciples, ultimately deciding that they too should all be executed. Uh, but no actual deaths are recorded in this. Um, so... This confirms additional details. Uh, number one, it, uh, the fact that Jesus had some disciples, Gospels confirmed, it gets the details wrong. Jesus had 12, not five disciples. So it's it's not just going by Christians or getting it from the Gospels. Obviously, they would know better. This suggests it's an early, confused Jewish tradition being preserved here. Um, and secondly, that some among the Jewish Jews or the Jewish leadership felt that even these men were also guilty of actions which warranted execution. Acts of the Apostles confirmed. Now, in terms of the second text, we're not going to go into an evaluation directly of that, um, although it is linked to the uh, trial of Jesus passage, the main passage we're going to be looking at here. So if that one is authentic, then this will be probably be authentic as well. Though I, I wouldn't make a case that they're independent of each other. I, it's obvious, I think, that they're linked. And for that reason, it really, in terms of proving there was a minimal historical Jesus, the independent tradition is the main text about Jesus' trial that will ultimately provide the basis to prove that uh, Jesus did in fact exist, the minimal historical Jesus existed. Whereas this text is more just derivative and it just gives us details about his disciples after the fact. Without the prior text of Jesus' trial, it's possible a mythicist could read this and say, yeah, well, G Jesus had disciples. Peter was real. Paul was real. Uh, they just believed in a celestial Jesus, as Richard Carrier says, and they were willing to die for that and sorcery and all of that stuff. So, yeah, ultimately, we're just going to go focus on this trial text. And if that's successful, then this derivative text will provide supplementary evidence confirming extra details from Acts of the Apostles and that sort of thing. But for our purposes, countering Jesus' mythicism, it's the trial text of Yeshu that we want to look at on the eve of the Passover. So let's get into that, uh, into uh, an assessment of this text. Okay, so this text is unique um, among 
all of the Jesus-censored traditions in the Talmud because uh, this is the only one where a growing number of rabbinical scholars, Christian, Jewish, atheist, whatever, are recognizing that at least part of it, if we take a nuanced scholarly approach to studying it and, and critically, not just biasly, but critically, part of it at least does probably date back to the time of Jesus. Now, it's true that with the current state of scholarship, as Mike Lacona said, most scholars do dismiss this passage's historical value. Um, so, for example, they'll argue that details like the her Herald going out for 40 days beforehand, this just shows it's hopelessly inaccurate. It has no historical validity to the Sitzim Lieben of Jesus in 30 AD when his trial was going on. It doesn't fit the Gospels, doesn't fit the time period. Usually any similarities to the gospel accounts where I was talking, just talking about with the gospels confirmed bit, um, this is automatically explained away. Well, this is just dependence on Christian traditions, probably the gospel of John mostly, because the gospel of John is exclusively says that Jesus was killed on the eve of Passover or Passover Eve. But a growing number of scholars, well, Dr. David Instone Brewer, among other many scho um, scholars growing number today think that this uh, this assessment is too hasty and uncritical or unnuanced. There's been a, a fury of publications with a more nuanced approach that recognize that there's an earlier core, historical core, that's, yes, has been subsequently heavily edited, and so those parts are unhistorical, but that doesn't mean that we have to reject the complete tradition as being unreliable or unhistorical. So, you know, these are works, for example, see uh, Ernst Bammel. Uh, he has an article, The T Titulus in the Trial of Jesus, uh, published in Cambridge Studies. And also uh, William Horbury, for example, has The Benediction of the Minimum, an Early Jewish Christian Controversy in uh, JTS. Uh, David, Dr. David Catchpole uh, has The Trial of Jesus, where he gives a more nuanced approach. And finally, the expert I'm relying on, Dr. David Instone Brewer, for a lot of my information. He's recently published an article, which I'm posting up for free for you guys on my blog to read through in more detail. Um, I'm going to do my best to cover it, but uh, in case I suck, go to the blog and read it for yourself with your own eyes from the actual primary source, the actual expert. But yeah, these are just a handful of these recent scholars who are giving a more nuanced approach. And don't forget, it's been uh, scientifically studied and by these rabbinical scholars. So, for example, Dr. David Inson Brewer has found, delivered consistent findings from what's called the Trent Project, T-R-E-N-T Project. And this is a project that aims to identify all rabbinic material which can be shown to originate before 70 AD. So this oral tradition before the Tanatic period, the destruction of the Second Temple, and its, its mission is to identify all rabbinical traditions in whatever form that originate prior to 70 AD. And what they found consistently is, again, these rabbinical editors are generally conservative with traditions, oral traditions from the past. So they rarely change wording, even when they did not understand the vocabulary. This is taking us back to what I said in the beginning, right? They always had a tendency to add words, never to take away words from an inherited tradition, even when they added words to interrupt those traditions by inserting explanatory phrases. Yeah, it, it seems that 
when you have a tradition in these things, it's more likely than not a priori to be an authentic oral tradition from the past and the words are all preserved. There may be words added to it and it then falls to the Trent Project to decipher, well, which are later bits, which are the original, what was the original form uh, free from in later interpolations and that sort of thing. But a priori, we should assume that the tradition is authentic and, and reliably preserved from the oral tradition whenever it, from whatever it originated prior to 70 AD. Obviously, this depends on finding out and discovering well, what is the original part, because how do we distinguish the original from the later interpolations? Obviously, the rabbis mix that all up. Okay, well, in terms of this passage, let's find out. So the first thing to do is, okay, well, what's the text? What are the physical manuscripts that we have that attest to this specific passage? So in the first place, I gave the reference from the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a. Was that true? Actually, that's an artificial designation because this, basic, this designation basically refers to the folio page numbers of the Daniel Bomberg edition. He made his edition in the early 1500s, and that was a semi-censored uh, text. So it didn't have this text. You know, in all subsequent editions which use this same page layout of the Talmud, all of them omit this passage. So we're kind of lying. There, there is no single manuscript that has this designation. Oh, Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a, and then repeats this passage. Um, because all the he all the Hebrew all the manuscripts and printings of the Talmud that have the this designation are censored. However, if this passage was included in the Bomberg edition, we know exactly where it would have been. It would have occurred at the very bottom of the folio side of 43a. Uh, and this is where some modern versions of the Talmud will insert it for this reason. So, well, how do we know it was there? How do we know what this passage is? Well, we have the actual Munich manuscript that is uncensored and from 1343 AD. And this passage basically occurs on page 679 of the facsimile here. And you can see on your YouTube screens, there's what it looks like. You can see sort of the erasures where it's semi-erased, but we can reconstruct the text from what they tried to censor there. As you can see here on your screen, this is what uh, scholars, modern scholars who use the nuance approach are saying the text was. So in the first place, one thing you'll to mention is I screwed up when I just said, um, and this is why I should do all my research at once rather than uh, doing it bit by bit, but because of time constraints, I don't have time to organize that. I'm more doing it as an informal study as a go type deal uh, due to time constraints, but that's good. So you can see here that Dr. David Instone Brewer himself actually says there's parts of that that Ula said, Rabbi Ula said, and it would be expected, blah, 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 the parts, and it goes on to describe Jesus' five disciples. And I said, well, that's a derivative text. So I would say it's probably correct if this passage is correct. David Instone Brewer says, no, guess what? That's That's total rubbish. This later comment by Ula bar Ishmael dates to about 300 AD and nobody denies that. And so, yeah, we shouldn't take the dis Jesus disciples passages. Those date post 300 AD. Um, they're later comments and have no uh, tradition or provable way to date that back to the time of Jesus or before 70 AD. For all we know, they originated as of the 3rd or even 4th century AD. So... 
throw those out. Uh, great. Um, so I was wrong about that. So it literally is all, it's all on this trial text. This is the only text that we have. Now, it is important uh, in the Munich manuscript. So it's Munich manuscript says this. It was taught on the eve of Passover, they hung Yeshu the Notsri, Jesus the Nazarene, or Na Jesus from Nazareth. And the herald went out before him for 40 days, saying, Yeshu the Natsri will go out to be stoned for sorcery and misleading and enticing Israel to idolatry. Any who knows anything in his defense must come and declare concerning, declare concerning him. But no one came to his defense, so they hung him on the eve of Passover. And notice the tenses in this manuscript. And anyone who knows anything in his defense must come concerning him must come present must you know it's saying like we we need you now it's in the present tense like the trial is happening now and then the after phrase is past tense but no one came to his defense so they hung him that's an interesting change in tense there that you should pay attention to perhaps now okay this this thing yeshu the notsri jesus of nazareth or jesus the nazarene uh, it's not just in the Munich manuscript that we have this phrasing. It's also in other manuscripts which have this tradition, um, though they contain a few variants. Uh, so, for example, the Florence manuscript. This has on the eve of Shabbat and eve of Passover, then Je you know Jesus was hung or, or hung on a thing. But it excludes the ha Nazri, you know, the Nazarene or from Nazareth element in it in the Florence manuscript so there are a few variants there to be aware of now what um, David Instone Brewer's hypothesis is here he says look in terms of this uncensored passage in the Munich manuscript what we can prove goes back to the time of Jesus is just this on the eve of Passover they hung Yeshu the Nazri Jesus of Nazareth for sorcery and enticing Israel to idolatry. That's it. That's what the original passage says. Everything else is later garbage and gobbledygook by the rabbis. But this core, this is the core tradition that he's arguing for. On the eve of Passover, they hung Jesus of Nazareth for sorcery and enticing Israel to idolatry. Or, and enticing Israel just without to idolatry added to it. Short, simple, that's the kernel, dates back, right back to the time of Jesus. All right, great. Well, now we know what we're looking at in terms of the manuscript evidence and what the original core is alleged to be. What's the dating of this original oral tradition, as uh, David Instone Brewer is saying, is preserved in the Talmud here? Okay, so in terms of dating the written text itself, um... There's no easy cut method to dating traditions and or units of tradition within rabbinical writings or the Talmud. Um, however, it is uh, possible to decipher several layers of dating of this overall full passage, not just the edited text, you know, David Instone Brewer's suggestion, but the text as a full unit, including uh, and up to the five disciples of Jesus and that sort of thing. Now, one of the things, again, remember the rabbis are generally conservative. So when they cite a tradition from the Mishnah, they'll cite it in full and only add stuff to it. Um, and if rabbis link certain traditions together, 
then those linked traditions will always stay linked and be quoted in full as a full unit going forward into future generations. Uh, and this creates, it's good for historians because it preserves more material, but it creates, if you're a, the, a rabbi or Jewish theologian or something, you want to make sense of it, it often leads into long, long, irrelevant digresses into irrelevant material when, you know, you just want to quote that sentence, but the rabbis won't do it because they'll quote everything, that entire unit uh, of the tradition and or if another rabbi links two units together, then that becomes one whole unit and the whole thing needs to be trans, uh, preserved and that sort of thing in full. Um, so that's the rabbi's tendency here. And that's the same here in this passage about Jesus and his trial. Uh, so Jesus's trial in context relates to the preceding discussion. But by the same token, the tradition about the trial of Jesus' disciples just has no relevance to any nearby discussion at all. And this is why Dr. Brewer thinks, in Stone Brewer thinks that we should dismiss this as just a late interpolation. It it doesn't fit in context like the trial of Jesus does. Okay, so let's uh, assess what the full edition of the text. So forget about the earlier historical kernel for a second. What can we determine about the dating um, from this full text that we have and are able to read it today? Well, uh, in terms of the structure of this, so there, as I said, scholar, rabbinical scholars have identified several layers. Just kind of a rough outline of this is, so there's part one. Uh, this is from the Mishnah, so between written down between 70 and 200 AD. It's a quote, quotation of the Mishnah, Sanhedrin, chapter 6, verse 1, which again, it has to do with the legal operation of trials and uh, what heralds are supposed to do in general. Then the second part is there's a discussion of uh, this Sanhedrin, chapter 6, verse 1, by Rabbi Abayah. Uh, in, this was in Babylon, 320 to 350 AD. Uh, the third part is discussing this Mishnah, Sanhedrin, chapter 6, verse 1, by an anonymous rabbi. And it was this anonymous rabbi, he's the one who put in this quotation in section 4 about Jesus' trial. You know, that tradition. He included this tradition quoted, quoted here. And he is essentially responding to the previous rabbinic comment, in the four, early 4th century by Rabbi Abaya. So he's responding to Rabbi Abaya, who's bringing up this Mishnah, quoting this Mishnah verse about chapter 6, verse 1, about trials and heralds and that sort of thing. And he, this anonymous rabbi is responding to Rabbi Abaya, and he brings up Jesus' trial text. Uh, he quotes this tradition from the early Tanaic period in response to Rabbi Abaya. Then the fifth part is a dis discussion of Jesus' trial tradition by a later rabbi, Ula, Rabbi Ula. Again, he was in Babylon around 290 to 320 AD. So this is after the anonymous rabbi. Sixthly, there's a quotation of Jesus' disciples' trial. Um, so, you know, Mattai to Toda. Rabbi Mattai is talking to Rabbi Toda. Uh, this is those five disciples texts that I said is we're not going to say is reliable. It's a late edition, but then that comes up. Then seventh, we have the dis discussing Rabbi Toda's trial by Rabbi Joshua ben Levi. Joshua ben Levi, this was in Palestine between 220 to 250 AD. 
Then eighth, we have them dis- discussing uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin chapter six verse two by Joshua ben Levi. And then ninth, we have a quotation of the Mishnah itself, Sanhedrin chapter six verse two. And then finally, tenth, we have uh, another discussion by various rabbis about the Sanhedrin chapter six verse two. So that's it. There's ten parts total. You can see on your YouTube screens. Um, so those are the layers. That's what we have in the T- Babylonian Talmud today in this passage. All of these elements. Um, basically, the final text as we have it today. Uh, this obviously developed slowly over various periods of time, from the early third century to the sixth centuries A.D. Uh, so that's when the full text as we have it today and how it developed, how various rabbis from later periods added on and contributed to it. Okay, so what can we say about the dating of this entire text as a whole? What what can we get from this all of these 10 sections and figure out in terms of the internal evidence to provide some concrete measures in terms of dating or historical anchor points? Well, Surprisingly, rabbinical scholars say that this text in particular has very rich uh, information in terms of internal factors from the text itself that provide very clear indicators, um, allowing rabbinical scholars to infer the development in considerable detail. So this is amazing. Uh, This is uh, what scholars dream about in terms of being able to piece together what happened. So just a couple points to, to raise here. So in the first place, we have a couple of names, uh, actual rabbis who've contributed to this that we know about from the text. So in the first place, we have Rabbi Ula and we have Rabbi Abaya. Abaya is the one who started off this whole uh, process. Now, the dates given for Rabbis Ula and Abaya, these represent the dates of the quote-unquote generations into which rabbis are, are categorized in the Talmud. Um, unfortunately, we do not know the exact dates of the active careers of the individual rabbis. We have the date ranges that I gave when they lived, uh, but we don't have the precise dates of when they were active or writing these things or writing this specific passage. So we can't really define the dates of these rabbis any more accurately than just providing their, you know, their birth and death rates kind of thing as a range. Um, so yeah, th- this could mean that maybe both of these rabbis, Rabbi Ula and Rabbi Abaya, who is the earlier one, maybe they overlapped. Uh, maybe these rabbis uh, took part in discussions together sometime around 320 AD in the fourth cent- early 4th century. Now, there is another one mentioned here, another rabbi, Rabbi Joshua ben Levi. And we know his dates, even just his birth and death rates in that range. It's not possible that Rabbi Joshua could have been there at that later time in 320 AD. So he doesn't overlap. This is much earlier. Um, So this section includes and merges at least two separate discussions that Rabbi rabbinic scholars have identified. So what are the two two traditions here? So number one, there's the... Tradition, two traditions about the trial of Jesus and then the tradition about his disciples. Um, So these uh, two separate Jesus traditions have been separated by uh, section five 
of Ula's, Rabbi Ula's comment. Uh, so what this suggests to rabbinical scholars is that this suggests that Ula's generation inherited a text which already included both of these two Jesus traditions. So Jesus' trial text and Jesus' five disciples text already existed by the time of Rabbi Ula, and he inserted his comment in between them, and he inherited these two texts. However, he by this time, he no longer regarded them as a single unit, which is why he felt free to break them up and insert his discussion point in between them. However, Ula's comment itself, by studying it, it shows that he had profound problems with this tradition, Jesus' trial tradition, but he didn't propose. So he was against this Jesus trial text. Uh, it went against what he wanted to hear, the point that he was trying to make in his comment. However, he didn't propose any amendment to the Jesus trial text. And what this suggests in terms of dating is that the wording of this precise trial tradition that we have was already fixed or entrenched in rabbinical thought at that time, and it didn't allow him to provide any alterations at all. He couldn't add to it. He couldn't um, take away anything from it. It was the tradition as we had it was already entrenched by the year 320 AD, presumably when Ula is uh, commenting here and inserting his comments into the written tradition. So that's a key. What this... Uh, trial text or trial tradition, oral tradition about Jesus and his trial on the eve of Passover, pre was already entrenched by the year 320 AD. It must date decades earlier than that, probably, in terms of its being written in its current form as we have it today. Okay, so what do we know about this anonymous rabbi, the one who actually introduced the written and first wrote down this tradition in this part of the Babylonian Talmud about Jesus' trial and his five disciples and the disciples' text. Well, the anonymous rabbi who introduced the traditions about Jesus and his disciples must have been earlier than Ula by at least one or more generations in order for Rabbi Ula in 320 AD to just accept his fixed written uh, text of recounting the trial of Jesus. Um, as well as the disciples. So he was an, either contemporary with or earlier than Rabbi Joshua ben Levi. And he was around 220 to 250 AD. That's when uh, Rabbi Joshua ben Levi was alive and writing his stuff. So because, and how do we know this? Well, it's because Joshua's first comment in this 10-section part of the Talmud here it's based on the end of the tradition about the trial of Jesus' disciples. Joshua is interacting with the, the tradition about Jesus' disciples. So he, rabbinical scholars have said, Occam's razor, the simplest solution here is that it's this anonymous rabbi was debating with Rabbi Joshua. And that means that he was in Palestine at the start of the 3rd century, uh, very soon after the editing and completion of the Mishnah in 200 AD. Um, and they were having this discussion about the Mishnah, chapter 6, verse 1. Um, so on this basis, rabbinical Dr. David Instone Brewer concludes that it's highly unlikely that the anonymous rabbi, the one who first wrote down the trial tradition in its current written form that we have it today, he wouldn't have been from an earlier generation compared to Rabbi Joshua. 
he would have had to have been very early on debating within a generation or two of Rabbi Ula prior to that. So he would have been debating early on, right after, at the start of the Amoranic period, uh, commenting on the completed Mishnah and getting into a debate with Rabbi Joshua in about 220s AD up to maybe 250 AD, in and sometime in and around there. And that's when this anonymous rabbi wrote down the trial of Jesus text and the tradition about Jesus' disciples as we have it in written form today. So just a couple of things to mention about this. So, so the discussion here of Babylon, the Mishnah, Sanhedrin chapter 6, verse 1, basically this is a text that refers to a herald who walks before the condemned person on their way to an execution. Um, they call for any last-minute evidence uh, in order to help defend the defendant. And it was this uh, part of the Sanhedrin, chapter 6, verse 1, this part of the Mishnah that caused the anonymous rabbi to introduce the tradition about Jesus' trial from oral tradition. So it's, it's oral tradition here about Jesus' trial. He writes it down for the first time. And he kind of mentions that there is a herald associated with Jesus' trial. But there's a problem here that's indicative of an earlier date here. So number one, there, there's two references to a herald, and they're very different from each other by, by this anonymous rabbi. Um, and they, they're actually somewhat contradictory to each other. So Look, in, in the Mishnah, the herald's announcement follows the trial and occurs only on one day, a single day. Uh, so, you know, during the condemned man's journey to, uh, to the place of the execution. But in the tradition about Jesus's trial, we have this weird aspect where the herald's announcement is made for 40 consecutive days uh, preceding the trial. What? 40 days prior to the trial? What the heck's going on here? Why would this anonymous rabbi be so stupid as to contradict when the Mishnah clearly says, one day, buddy, one day, no more, no less. And then all of a sudden he's recounting a tradition as backup for, for his position. And it, it, Jesus is talking about he had 40 days where a herald went out. What? That's contradictory. So that's a, this is a tension in the text, suggesting it's an earlier entrenched tradition tradition and that sort of thing, it, it's very telling that this anonymous rabbi, even at the early date of the 220s, contemporary with Rabbi Joshua, he doesn't dare question the Jesus trial tradition about the herald being out there for 40 days. Uh, he doesn't propose a correction for it to, to try and solve the contradiction at all. He just reports it as a matter of fact. And this really implies that they're both being treated uh, as having comparable standing, both Mishnah, uh, Sanhedrin chapter 6, verse 1, which says, one day only, that's it. And also this Jesus trial tradition that he's writing down, he just reports it, same, it suggests they have the same level as authority, meaning that suggesting they go back to the Tanaic period at least. And this rabbi from the Amoraic period doesn't have the right to question or say anything or contradict or try to solve the problem he merely just it's my job just to report or repeat what the authorities from prior generations have said and he's just reporting it you know they contradict each other and say different things 
but it's not his place to try to solve that contradiction. It's his job um, to just report what his betters have said before him. He doesn't have the right to dispute rabbis from earlier generations. He just has to report what they they said and what their traditions say. So that's it's suggesting, look, this goes way beyond. This goes into the Mishnah period. This anonymous rabbi in 220 AD, let's say, for the sake of argument, he sees the Mishnah, which was absolutely authoritative, six chapter Sanhedrin, chapter six, verse one, but also this tradition about Jesus' trial and his disciples, exact same level of authority, meaning they had to date back earlier at the very latest to the late second century AD. So we're pushing it back even further here. Additionally, another argument suggesting it goes back to this early period, authoritative period, before the Amorite period to the Tanaim, Tanaim period, uh, is look, remember I said Rabbi Ula treated these traditions, the Jesus' disciples' trials and Jesus's tr act, Jesus himself's trial, as two separate traditions. He inserted his own comment into it later on around the 4th century, or 325 AD, or 320 AD, in and around there. However, before that, it was clearly one single unit at the time of Rabbi, before Rabbi Ula uh, separated them, it was seen as one single unit. But we can also tell, even before it was amalgamated into a single unit, originally they were also two separate units. So it's it, the, originally, they were two separate units, then they became combined into one single unit, and then in around 320 AD, Rabbi Ula separated them once again. But how do we know that they were originally second units, and what are two separate units in terms of their original uh, status as Jesus' traditions? Well, um, and what does this say about the dating? Well, in terms of the trials of Jesus and his disciples, um, they were originally independent units because they both have separate introductory rabbinic formulas. So, quote-unquote, uh, the Jesus passage, you know, it is taught, or with the disciples thing, our rabbis have taught. These are express formula that are normally used for traditions originating with the Tanaim period. Remember that early, the rabbis of the Mishnaic times so between 70 to 200 AD, just the period we said we would we would take our traditions from and, and assess anything, any traditions that originated later than that, we would just assume to be fake. So see the layer of complexity here. In terms of writing it, the, the writing down of the exact wording of the G, tradition of Jesus' trial as we have it today, along with the other stuff, some of the other stuff, uh, that happened by an anonymous rabbi in about, at the earliest, 220 AD, let's say for the sake of argument, sometime between 200 and 250 AD, let's say that. So that so that's too late. We should dismiss it. No, because we can prove that the oral tradition upon which that anonymous rabbi was writing down, we can prove that goes back to the Tanaim period, an earlier period, 70 AD to 200 AD, or earlier, maybe to 30 AD, and that's what we're going to be arguing uh, but at least we have we know that the full text, including the text of the Herald, from my first argument, that goes back past 200 AD to the time of the 10 AM, the authoritative period that we are saying a tradition has to date from for us to even consider it. So it is from this early period, but we also have this second 
evidence supporting that it goes back to this Tanaim because they're using express this anonymous rabbi uh, when he's quoting the traditions, oral traditions, and writing them down in the third century AD. He's saying, "Well, it is taught, or our rabbis have taught." talking about previous generations in the authoritative period of the Mishnah. Uh, this is expressly used for the Tanaim period uh, before 200 AD. It's not used for rabbis afterwards. So this is suggestive of, again, this oral tradition about Jesus' trial is pushed back earlier and earlier to the late 2nd century AD or earlier. This is another evidence for it. Now, obviously, you know, the presence of this kind of formula, like everything stylistic, it isn't an infallible marker. No, it's possible they could have rabbis, some rabbis might have used this uh, thing for later rabbis and that. But again, balance of probabilities. And the evidence is, generally speaking, this these are formula that only apply to rabbis in the Tanaim period. So it's probably indicating, especially in light of the fact of our previous argument about this rabbi having a contradiction about the heralds in the Mishnah, chapter 6, Sanhedrin 6.1, and the contradiction about 40 days with the herald and the Jesus trial tradition, but yet he, the rabbi can't contradict it. He just reports it as fact because he takes them both to have the same age and authority. They're both pushed back before 200 AD in terms of their oral tradition origination uh, or earlier. So... Again, this is just added supportive evidence that it has this formula that typically applies only to the Tanaim, rabbis of the Tanaim period. Also, it's it's very likely that these formula are accurate in light of this uh, argument that we said about how the Jesus tradition has a comparable authority to the Mishnah itself. That just wouldn't happen if this oral tradition about Jesus' trial post-dated 200 AD post-dated the completion of the Mishnah itself. Um, so yeah, rabbinical scholars kind of see with this unit, there's, there's again, historical layers here, right? It's been merged into this unit in the Talmud, but, you know, there's at least four layers here. So one, there's the Mishnah proper um, with the actual quotations, chapter 6, verse 1. Two, the traditions of the trials, Jesus and the trials of his disciples, again, to an, before 200 AD or earlier. And then post-200 AD or earlier, we have the discussion by Rabbi Joshua ben Levi uh, with another rabbi, an, an anonymous rabbi who quotes these traditions in Palestine sometime between 220 to 250 AD. And then uh, fourthly, we have this added layer later on in the 320 AD between a discussion between Rabbi Ula and Rabbi Abaya. So those are the four kind of developmental layers that we've established with the text or the tradition as we have it in its current written form. And there's suggestions within that that push this current written form tradition back prior to the year 200 AD, sometime in the second century AD or earlier. So that's that's incredible. This is amazing, awesome. Okay, well, what else can we get out of this? All right, so let's look at the, turn our attention to the earlier, the tradition, at, full tradition as it existed in the oral period. And let's take a look and try and see if we can peel back some of the layers of historical development and additions in this text, if there were any. The first way to do that is let's try and take a look at other sources outside of this textual passage that make reference to the trial of Jesus and try to piece together and 
look at the internal coherence as well as the external coherence with external documents and how the internal coherence of this text makes sense and see if there, there are ways for us to strip the onion layers of later editions and get back to a historical kernel or core that dates back to the time of Jesus in 30 AD. So let's first look at other sources for this tradition about Jesus' trial. Now, essentially, in terms of external evidence, there's at least four other sources about Jesus' trial. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so, so let's find out. So the first one is a censored passage, a later censored passage, Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin, chapter six, uh, 67a. And this includes the words, quote-unquote, on the eve of Passover they hung, followed by other names for Jesus. So instead of saying Jesus, they say Ben Stada and Ben Pandera, which again are associated with Jesus, or at least uh, a lot of people think they are and that sort of thing. The second and third ones, um, basically in the Sanhedrin 107b, and also there's a parallel account in the book of Sota 47a, but all rabbinic literature, the words, quote unquote, for sorcery and enticing Israel occur, these two charges that just happen to align with what happened to Jesus? Interesting. And fourthly, forget about the Jews. Outside of the Talmud, we have early Christians confirming Jesus' trial. So these exact two charges for sorcery and enticing Israel are recorded by the ancient early Christian church father, Justin Martyr, in 150 AD. Interesting. Mid-2nd century, pushing it back even more. Um, and he said that as a result of Jesus' miracles, the Jews, quote-unquote, dared to call him a magician and an enticer of the people. And he's got the Greek here. So um, a scholar, Stanton, pointed out that these two charges also occur, interestingly, in the 3rd century Christian source, apocryphal source, Acts of Thomas, chapter 96, where basically Thomas is charged, uh, charged with them these charges, um, and Thomas is acting as a proxy for Jesus in the Acts of Thomas here. So um, additionally, they also occur in Josephus in his Testimonium. Um, I'm going to ignore that in this part where I already evaluated Josephus, the Testimonium of, of uh, Flavius Josephus about Jesus. Um, but just understand, this is another uh, potential avenue that has these charges associated with Jesus being hung on the eve of Passover. And, and whatnot. So, interesting. We have these external sources that make reference to Jesus' trial and execution. Um, and we can see certain similarities here, um, as well as potentially differences. So, we got Jesus being hung on the eve of Passover, and he's got two charges associated with him in the earliest sources. Uh, Christian and Jewish, you know, sorcery and enticing Israel. Now, what's interesting here is that there appears to be some confusion over the charges of Jesus. So, in the old, older sources, only two charges are recorded in Babylonian Sanhedrin 107b and in Ju the early Christian church father Justin Martyr. So, Dr. David Instone Brewer and Dr. Graham Stanton believe 
Look, it is most the most likely scenario is that this third charge never existed in the original. This is a onion peel that needs to be peeled off and thrown away. Um, it was really originally just two charges that was in this oral tradition about Jesus's trial that we're quoting from here, and that is consistent with all of our other external sources that talk about Jesus's trial or that we think talk about Jesus's trial. And that specifically mentioned these two charges that Jesus was charged with and provided the basis for his execution. So that's why these four texts are relevant. They mentioned the specific formula of these two charges, um, that Jesus sorcery and enticing the people of Israel. Um, whereas the text also, our text has a third thing of misleading people. And we're arguing here that the misleading charge is not a part of the original. Again, why, why would we think this? Well, again, number one, the Trent Project has proven scientifically and empirically through statistics that rabbis had the general thing of adding. They didn't take away words. So it's much more likely just a priori that rabbis wouldn't take away. It wasn't like, oh, the oral tradition had three charges and then the rabbis took away a charge. No, it's more likely there was two charges and then they added the third charge uh, to the list. That's just a priori their general tendency. So there's that argument for thinking that it was originally just two, not three charges. Additionally, the two limiting it to the two charges is more consistent with our early external sources, the other sources in the in the rabbinic literature in the Talmud, as well uh, Josephus, and as well the early church father in 150 AD, that early period, mid second century of Justin Martyr's works. Um, so the external evidence also supports that the original oral tradition probably just had these two charges against Jesus. It didn't have the third charge of misleading. And it's also going to be suggested, Dr. David Instone Brewer argues, look, the rabbis actually had good reasons for adding the charge of misleading rather than taking it away in certain versions. Well, okay, so what he does, um, in the first place, the Jews in the rabbinic literature uh, during the Mishnah period, so the Mishnah manages to find a distinction, uh, which is content then continued on into the Talmud in the later periods, 200 to 500 AD, and these become the legal halakhic definition of those words in Jewish law, so it's entrenched. So the term enticer, that, that charge of it, Jesus being an enticer of the people of Israel, an enticer is used only for the crime of leading a whole town uh, or nation or corporate group into idolatry, as per Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 13. So the Mishnah here concluded that a, a misleader was someone who merely leads a single person into idolatry. And this comes from the Mishnah, Sanhedrin, chapter 7, verse 10. I'll, I'll say it that way. So, so a misleader mislead, brings one person into idolatry. An enticer brings a whole village, town, or group of people into idolatry. So this is another reason for thinking, look, there's no need to call Jesus a misleader. Obviously, if he's an enticer, he's automatically a misleader by extension. So it doesn't make sense given the rabbinic practice of stating the Jewish law to accuse Jesus of being a, a sorcerer and a misleader and an enticer of the people after Israel. That doesn't make sense. You would just say he's a sorcerer 
and he miss he's a enticer of the people. That's it. So that's another reason uh, that Jews in particular, the rabbis in particular, would only have in the original oral period would only have had these two charges. They probably wouldn't have added this redundant third charge of being a misleader. Um, that maybe only came, became relevant in a later period, in later centuries. And in fact, we, we kind of know, we have uh, from the Sitzim Lieben, we kind of have a, a suggestion, a plausible suggestion as to what came about, why this charge of Meset or being, Jesus being a misleader, third charge came in. Uh, Dr. Gunter Mark has argued that the Meset or the misleader charge was central to the purpose of tradition in later centuries. Essentially, it started with Rabbi Ula. Remember in 320 AD, that last layer of the development, Rabbi Ula debating um, the other rabbi, um, but Rabbi Ula, uh, Abeya, but Rabbi Ula equates misleading, the charge of misleading to someone who is quote-unquote close to the government. So that's why they insert this third charge later on in the fourth century by Rabbi Ula. So he was indicating a completely new ma- new meaning for this term, meset, which means misleader. That didn't apply in earlier centuries, not at the time of Jesus, not in the original time, not in the 220s. It came about in the 4th century by this Rabbi Ula guy who associated misleading as being close to, as including being close to the government. Obviously, this fits the Sitzim Libum where the Christians they they are close to the government with Constantine. Now the we're a Christian empire, or the the empire was officially tolerating the Christian religion. Um, so that that was the Sitzim Libum, the change of why this term would have been added, according to Gunter Mark later on, even though it didn't make sense in earlier centuries at all. So it's 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 not just that the term misleader. It just means uh, bringing one person into idolatry. Uh, before Rabbi Ula comes along in 320 AD, with Rabbi Ula and subsequent to that, it's not just that you lead an individual astray, but it's that a Jew apostatizes and sides with non-Jewish rulers, i.e. Christian rulers, rulers of the Roman Empire, um, after the time of Constantine and stuff. So, yeah, at the time, obviously, Ula for Ula, Christianity was becoming institutionalized and this is kind of a halakhic or legal response to a wave of new apostates, Jews who are apostatizing from the Jewish religion and converting to Christianity en masse in order to get political benefits and get close to those in political power who are obviously Christians at this time. So, so that's what happened there. That's why they, why the later rabbis would have inserted this interpolation of, well, Jesus isn't just guilty of sorcery and enticing the people. He's also guilty of misleading as well. You know, misleading people to get abandon the Jewish religion in order to get close to the government. Lastly, with respect to the two charges and that being part of proving that that's part of the historical core nugget or kernel, um, you know, of what Jesus was accused of. It's also significant that all these external sources and the the text that the trial text that we're looking at here, the order of the charges is also important, right? So sorcery followed by enticing the people. This is exactly opposite to the order, established order found in all rabbinical legal discussions in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, in the Mishnah, and the relatively independent 
uh, account in the uh, Tosseta, from, again, that's during the period 70 to 200 AD. So one would obviously expect that the common occurrence of these charges as an established pair, their linked pair all the way back to the biblical book of Deuteronomy, this is the way you've got to put it, in this particular order. The rabbis cemented, entrenched that you have to say it this the opposite way that this tri trial text about Jesus has them. Um, you're not following established helictic or legal practice here. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because none of the versions of this Jesus trial tradition referred to the charges in this order. It's all in the exact opposite order in the, the way they should be. So this suggests that there's an independent tradition about Jesus, one that di didn't derive from any halakhic or legalistic discussions of the rabbis or Pharisees at all. Um, they had a, a, a separate and entirely authoritative source that wasn't legalistic or, you know, based on uh, legal courts and established or contradicted the established order. That's incredible. That's something that's very suggestive. What could this separate but yet equally authoritative source possibly be? Hmm. We'll find out. Um Hint, could it be maybe the Sanhedrin court at the time of Jesus, the, the Sadduc ruled by the Sadducees? We'll find out. But uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I'm not good at keeping secrets or, or surprises for you guys. Um, <laughs> all right, anyways, let's move on. So, so here's the point. Look, the, the fact that with respect to these two charges, the fact that various sources have survived with parts of the tradition about Jesus' trial suggests that this tradition was widely known and well-preserved in its current form, which is opposite to established rabbinic form from later times, suggesting an early provenance or origination for this oral tradition, but yet one that had equal and authoritative status. Obviously, from Justin Martyr, we know he's writing in about 150 AD. He has the same two ordered, uh, misordered uh, charges, two binary charges for Jesus. And he's responding specifically to Jews in this book. And he's saying, look, this is common knowledge. He doesn't need to prove that these that the Jews charged Jesus with these two specific charges in this non-legalistic order. It's just established common knowledge, according to Justin Martyr. He just assumes you guys know, already know this, right? So I don't have to back it up or prove it to, to you as my Jewish opponents, you already know what I'm saying. It's 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 confirmed history. You get it. So that's very telling. So so yeah, we all in all, we look, we have confirmation from three rabbinic sources and from one early mid-2nd century Christian source for the words on the eve of the Passover, they hung Yeshua for sorcery and enticing Israel. This is the historical core nugget that Dr. David Instone Brewer is arguing for. And this it's important to note, this is just what we can prove positively. So David Instone Brewer, maybe other parts of, of this text um, are historical current, part of the historical kernel as well, and do go back to the time of Jesus. We just can't prove it. Minimally, so far at least, all we are doing is just proving this minimal core. We can prove that. If there's other stuff to be added to it that hasn't been proven as of yet, so be it. And we also have the bits that we can prove were not a part of the original or de were derived later, such as this third charge of Jesus being misleading. We know for a fact that wasn't a part of the historical kernel 
or core. So, so keep that straight in your mind. This nug- historical nugget that David Stone Brewer is arguing for and that I'm presenting his case for is just on the eve of Passover, they hung Jesus or Yeshu uh, Hanatsuri uh, for sorcery and enticing Israel. That's it. That's what goes back to the time of Jesus. Uh, or, sorry, that's what we can prove goes back to the time of Jesus, according to Dr. David Stone Brewer. There's other, mate- there's other material in this quote. Is that a part of the original or not? We can't prove one way or, the, or another, according to Stone Brewer. It's up to you. But there are also additionally some bits that we can prove do not go back. And I've established the first part of that about misleading, this third misleading charge. Perhaps there's more. We'll get into it as we go. So essentially, uh, this is the third task. Uh, Are there bits that we can prove are not a part of the historical kernel? And on this front, in the next section, I want to look at four difficulties or problems that are implicit in the expanded tradition of this uh, Jesus trial text. Sorry, trial text that we have. Um, And there are at least four inconsistencies which have been introduced by uh, by rabbis, later rabbis, as explanatory additions. This is at least what Dr. David Instone Brewer argues. And uh, we're basically going to go, let's go over what are these four problems and let's determine. This will help us determine whether they are part of the original oral tradition itself uh, or not. Or were they just later additions added to the oral edition, or oral tradition and or per- perhaps even in the written tradition or something like that at later times. All right, so let's get into that. Uh, so what what are these four problems? So the first internal problem concerns the method of execution of Jesus, the, the method that they're trying to kill Jesus with. So let's get into that. Okay, so as we see um, in the textual tradition, the herald's going out and he's saying, look, um, up to 40 days prior, they wanted, the herald was proclaiming that Jesus was due to be stoned for his crimes, his two crimes. But yet it also says in the passage that Jesus was hung, meaning crucified on a cross. Um, so how do we make sense of this tension? Well, he, it, this passage says uh, that he deserved to be stoned, yet the punishment is not for him to be stoned, but to be crucified. Um, how do we make sense of that? Well, obviously, as Bible-believing Christians, we already know the answer. But I'm just for the sake, just keeping it neutral at this point. Look, there is this tension in the tradition that we have. Um, an obvious solution, if you're a Jewish person, you might say, "Well, I know, maybe he was stoned first, and then his corpse was hung up on a tree as or crucified as a public warning or something." Maybe you could come up with a solution if you want to. You know, not take the Gospels route like the Christians believe where, well, they were delivered to the Romans and the Romans crucified him and that sort of thing. It's what's interesting here and that there's this tension because the hanging or the crucifixion of Jesus re- receives far more emphasis in this tradition than the punishment by stoning does. So there's a heavier emphasis on the crucifixion. For example, the tradition opens with the fact that he was hung on or crucified on a specific date. And this emphasizes that this is the more important element than the stoning. Um, And this is even repeated at the end of the tradition again, or this textual tradition. So, yeah, the the only single reference to stoning occurs on the lips of the herald as something which should but didn't happen. 
you know, this is kind of a tension in the text. It's not an insurmountable problem, but it's there. There's the tension. Uh, again, favoring Gospels confirm that Jesus was crucified, and Gospels confirm confirmed as well, as we'll find out a little bit later, where they say the Jews were going out and bugging Jesus, like the little heretics or the Satan-inspired minions that they were. They were threatening to stone Jesus for teaching the gospel truth and saving people. Yeah, they didn't like that because they were servants of Satan, these Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. Anyways, we'll get into that in a moment. Um, okay, so, so that's sort of the first tension, just keeping it neutral at this point. Um, that's sort of the first problem or difficulty or tension in this tradition. This, the differences between the method of execution and the emphasis on the crucifixion over and against stoning, which you would think is the proper Jewish punishment for those crimes that he is accused of. So the second problem is the issue of the 40 days during which the herald called for witnesses um, to defend Jesus before his trial. Um, now, the only Mishnaic law uh, in the Mishnah about a herald refers to someone who precedes the contem condemned person while being led from the trial to the place of execution. You know, heralds aren't supposed to go before the trial and try to bring witnesses to help out uh, a witness or something like that. And it was actually this precise problem that, that caused our anonymous rabbi in and around 220 to 250 AD to first write down this ancient tradition about Jesus and his trial. This was the impetus for it, to, to introduce the tradition of Jesus' trial into the debate. Basically referring to the Mishnah, he pointed out that, quote-unquote, this implies that the herald goes out only immediately before the execution, but not previous thereto. You don't go out before the trial if you're a herald. Uh, so then this anonymous rabbi is saying, yeah, but this oral tradition about Jesus, uh, where the herald goes out for 40 days prior, and he just reports this um, as having the same age and authority level as the Mishnah passage itself, saying that you don't do this. And he never solves this tension. He, as we kind of argued before, he just leave, leaves it hanging there. But there is that tension in the text. Do heralds go out 40 days prior uh, prior to the trial, um, or do they only accompany the guilty person from the trial to the place of execution? Which is it? There's that tension in the tradition. The third uh, tension, again, is something we already looked at, but the this text says that the herald went out for 40 days prior to to try and get witnesses to defend Jesus in his defense and that sort of thing. Now, it's incredibly awkward here because there is zero authority anywhere for this number of days relating to a trial in the Jewish halakhic or legalistic literature. The closest thing that we ever have is a reference in the uh, Mishnah, Sanhedrin chapter 3 verse 8, which allows up to 30 days prior to the trial. And, and this says, quote-unquote, that a judge may allow for a delay of 30 days, no more, for finding evidence in support of someone. But it has to be said, look, this procedure, it was not mandatory, and it wasn't normal. By far, 99% of cases, they didn't allow up to 30 days to defend this. Um, and in fact, in history, we rabbinical scholars, biblical scholars, Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, atheistic historians, everyone agrees there's actually no single case that we even know of in history where a court actively helped the defense by allowing up to 30 days for them to get defense witnesses and that sort of thing. 
And, and this problem, this shocking nature where Jesus uniquely gets 40 days, supposedly, um, this is the problem that provoked Rabbi Ula very late, remember 320 AD, after this was for, the tradition was written down, he sees this and goes, what? Um, so this is what provoked Ula's question, um, basically pointing out that even if it was customary, it would not apply to someone on such a seriously dangerous charge. Ula is saying, look, first of all, this is not normal. You don't get, we don't know any cases where you give anyone 40 days. We just don't do that. That's not Jewish rabbinic law. That wasn't Pharisaic law. That was never what we should do. But it's even worse. Even if it was, you would never give it to a person like Jesus, someone charged with those two charges of sorcery and sedition or, or uh, enticing the people of Israel to go into idolatry. You don't give it to those people bad guys they're evil that was that was kind of what ula was saying and obviously someone answered ula that jesus must have had friends in high places he was close to the government or something like that okay so that's the third problem the fourth and final tension or problem or issue in this tradition that needs to be uh reconciled is again what we mentioned before that list of charges um because remember, this second one of misleading is implied in the third. It couldn't be a part of the original. Misleaders, in the time of the Mishnaic and Talmudic times, a misleader simply referred to someone who leads a single person into idolatry, whereas an enticer leads a whole town, village, and or more into idolatry. So obviously this means that, look, a to be an enticer automatically entails that you're a misleader. You don't need to state that publicly. It's it's as foolish as, as saying, look, so this guy, um, Adolf Hitler and the Black Lives Matter movement or something like that, they're guilty of genocide and murder. No, you, you don't need to say the murder part. Genocide, we got it. That that includes murder. Um, it's, it's there. We've got it. So that's the other issue that we kind of hinted at earlier in, in terms of how that speaks to dating. But there's that tension in the text that we need to be aware of and, and find out how to deal with. All right, so, so that's it in terms of what these difficulties are, at least with the full-on text or the full oral tradition dating back to before 200 AD during the Tanaeum period. Because uh, remember, we proved that the full tradition uh, was in oral form prior to 220 AD when it was first written down by Rabbi by the anonymous rabbi responding to Rabbi jo uh, Joseph uh, Ben Levi. Uh, I think I got it. Joshua Ben Levi, sorry. Um, so yeah, the, we know that this oral tradition in its fuller form dates back prior to 200 AD to the authoritative period of the Tanaeum period. Late 2nd century, uh, late 100 and 100s AD or earlier, perhaps to the time of Jesus in 30 AD. But... Um, Okay, well, what about with respect to Dr. David and Stone Brewer's suggestion for this historical core or this historical kernel or nugget? Just a little bit that on the eve of Passover, Yeshu or Jesus Christ was, Jesus was uh, hanged or crucified for those two charges of sorcery and enticing the people of Israel to. Are there, are there any issues within that core, just that core tradition that we need to look at? All right, well, let's turn to the core tradition and take a look here. So the first immediate problem that would strike people, and in fact, it, it's uh, struck most atheists and skeptics on a lay level when they 
very foolishly try to argue, well, look, uh, the Gospels can't be real. Why? Because the Jews would never have a trial on Passover Eve. That, that's just totally not historical. Uh, complete rubbish, atheists and skeptics. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. But nonetheless, there's actually some truth here, and it applies to, to truth to this in that it applies to this tradi trial tradition about Jesus. It's absolutely correct. Look, the Passover Eve refers to the whole day preceding the Passover meal. It's exactly like Christmas Eve for us today. It's the whole day preceding Christmas Day. Now, it's important to note here, so there's nuance that, you know, lay atheists and skeptics are just totally ignorant about historically. But it is entirely true that the Passover Eve ceremony, even at the time of Jesus, was just as important as the Passover day itself. Uh, and it was during this time, the whole day of Passover Eve was devoted to sacred tasks. Uh, you know, so it, they're certainly right. It wasn't the right time for a trial or an execution. It just wasn't the proper time. Um, and we know this for, for a fact from uh, our early Jewish literature, rabbinic literature here, right? So, you know, uh, Passover Eve, that's the day when leaven was searched for by Jews. Uh, it was cleared out of each home. The importance of this ceremony uh, only grew in importance after 70 AD, after the destruction of the temple, obviously. Um, but yeah, this was the day when the sacrifice of a lamb was usually done after 70 AD when that became impossible. You know, a new a new uh, situation was uh, derived from by the rabbis. But a timetable was instituted by which leaven had to be found by noon on Passover Eve. And then a signal was given at the temple when this search should end. And this is in the Mishnah, uh, Peshka chapter 1 verse 5. Um the school of Shammai, the rabbi, the contemporary of Jesus, um, and his school effectively disappeared after 70 AD. So we have traditions from him prior to the destruction of the temple. He agreed fully with the school of Hillel, his com competitor or dial interlocutor, that the whole day should be devoted to searching for leaven and no other work should occur at all. And this is in, again, the Mishnah, Peshka, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5. Basically, you're getting the sense here, look, the, the whole day of Passover Eve was devoted solely to sacred tasks. And the atheists and skeptics are absolutely correct to say that it's, at the very least, it's odd and it wasn't the most appropriate or best time to hold a trial or an execution on Passover Eve, such a holy day that was so highly regarded even in Jesus' day prior to the destruction of 70 AD. Now, it's important to note, we, we have no evidence that this this date would be illegal for there to be a trial. So it is entirely possible and plausible that they may have had an ad hoc trial um, uh, for Jesus on Passover Eve. There's nothing that would absolutely rule it out about this, but it is odd. Um, you know, it's certainly not a date which would have been chosen by any court that's interested in observing Jewish customs in ideal circumstances, at least. Um, so we have to admit that much to the um, to these objectors. Now, kind of going further, in, in, it's important to note that in the first century AD, it would have been an embarrassment that Jewish leaders had chosen this date. But again, we know for a fact it wouldn't have been a great 
difficulty. Um, it would have been possible in some circumstances for them to do this. And we know this because, look, there's different branches of Judaism prior to 70 AD. And they had all had different regulations. Remember, Caiaphas was a Sadducee, not a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the predecessors of the rabbis of rabbinic Judaism that we have today. Um, so it was a totally different, different uh, ruling party. And we know that some of these groups, these branches of Judaism, uh, some of them chose to continue working normally on Sabbath Eve. Uh, we know this from the Mishnah, pa Peshka chapter 4, verse 1. Um, however, the Sitzim Liban totally changed after 70 AD and into the second century when the ceremony on pa of finding leaven on Passover Eve, um, that had become much more important and central to the Jewish identity. Um, and basically, by this time, Judaism was totally united around rabbinic law. The branches all disappeared, and it was all the successors of the Pharisees, the rabbis, who took over, and they define Judaism today. So, so yeah, it would have been a much greater problem if this oral tradition about Jesus' trial originated in the 2nd century or the late 1st century, when the rabbis were beginning to consolidate Judaism under their one set of regulations and increasingly more formalized and entrenched understanding of and regulations, uh, this again, what we'll see, this speaks to an early date in the before 70 AD, perhaps, that this tradition came about. It, it's reflecting Jewish tradition when there was various branches like the Sadducees who didn't give a rat's tinker, a rat's patoot, about not working on the Sabbath Eve, they'll do it whether you like it or not. I'm Caiaphas, the Sadducee. I don't follow you, Pharisees. Um, so it, it's a better fit. This is suggestive of an earlier date prior to 70 AD that this tradi oral tradition was in invented about Jesus and his trial or came about or originated. All right, cool. So we'll get into that in a little bit more detail later. Uh, but there's a second problem that I should mention regarding just the historical core tradition that Dr. David Instone Brewer is uh, proposing here. And that's the suggestion that the execution was by hanging rather than being stoned. So this is a problem for the core tradition as prescribed by the Torah and Mishnah. And we kind of already addressed that above. Why is that a problem? Well, look, the, the Torah is absolutely clear. Uh, the first five books of Moses are absolutely clear that stoning was the punishment for enticing. It's Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 to 10. Though it has to be admitted, yeah, it didn't prescribe a death penalty for sorcery. Um, if you read Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, or Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. Uh, so that part has to be admitted. The, the death penalty of stoning, definitely for the second charge of enticing, um, but the death penalty was not prescribed for sorcery per, per se, in the Torah at least. However, by the time of the second century, it was rabbinic entrenched law that sorcery was punishable by stoning, uh, no exceptions as well. Um, and they had their reasons for that. The rabbis um, made this decision partly because uh, the sorceress is listed alongside the women, uh, woman, woman who's guilty of bestiality in the Bible. So, and that is punishable by stoning. So that's how they made that connection. But that came about later on in the second century, where it was crystal clear that you would be stoned for for uh, being a sorcerer or a sorcery sorcerer. Now the term for hanged, um, obviously, okay, so he was hanged. 
there are some options here. If you're a Jewish versus Christian, okay, maybe it could refer to execution by hanging from the neck. It can also apply to execution by crucifixion, which is the majority uh, time when it's used. It means that. Or maybe it's just referring to the hanging of a corpse from another form of execution. They stoned Jesus, and then they hung his corpse for all to see. So what do we make of this? Well, without any reference to another form of execution, the assumption in the 1st or 2nd centuries AD would be that hang refers specifically to crucifixion. Um, so if this, as we've proven so far, this, this oral tradition dates at the earliest from the second century, and we've given a couple, one indication or a couple indications so far, dates back prior to 70 AD in the first century. Um, the automatic assumption, the default is when you say hanged, you're talking about crucifixion. You're not talking about other stuff. Um, unless you specify in the context that you're meaning something else by that. Um, and in fact, even in the early second century, remember uh, good old Rabbi Mir, the successor successor of Rabbi Akiba or Rabbi Akiva in 135 AD, who foolishly supported that false heretic of a Jewish Messiah, Rabbi Bar Kokhba, sorry Bar Kokhba, in the rebellion there. Um, so yeah, Rabbi Mir he also assumed in the uh, early to mid uh, second century AD that he just had this automatic assumption that when he expounded Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 that hanging there as an indication of God's curse uh, is basically telling a parable of a crucifixion or about crucifixion itself so so yeah someone reading the core tradition without any mention of stoning would automatically conclude that Jesus was executed by crucifixion uh, given that this passage absolutely dates from the 2nd century or 1st century AD. Uh, this oral tradition dates from that, those times. So, absolute proven fact, uh, you've got to believe that. Um, so, yeah, that's what the scholars say here. Um, okay, so great, it meant crucifixion. Well, then why do we have this tension? Why is it talking about st stoning them? Because obviously this conclusion, if it is this firm and all rabbinical scholars, atheist, Jewish, Christian, they all agree, well, doesn't this create problems then? Well, it creates problems in the second century AD uh, when Judaism was attempting to follow uniform rabbinic halakha or legalistic practices and they were consolidating Jews all under one uniform thing. It wasn't so much a problem prior to 70 AD though. Uh, when we had all these various branches of Judaism with different regulations, you know, the Sadducees were the political elites more important than the Pharisees in that time period, uh, you know, during the time of Jesus with Caiaphas and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, it's funny, in, in the second century, rabbis uh, in reinvented history and tried to reinterpret history back to say that, oh, well, no, 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 this rabbinic halakha or legalistic practice that had always been followed even before 70 AD. They had this explanation of it. Um, and they said that the Sadducean priests had been forced by the Pharisees to obey this legalistic practice. By way of an example here, um, they actually thought that the high priest on the Day of Atonement obeyed the Pharisees. It says, quote unquote, they forced the high priest to swear to obey the sages. This is in um, Kip chapter 1 verse 8. Um, and, and in uh, Babylonian Talmud, Yom, uh, chapter 19b, 
Um, and it says, The father of a priest who disobeyed the sages met him and said to him, My son, although we follow the Sadducees, we fear the Pharisees. Another quote says, If the high priest was a sage, he expounds the scriptures. If not, despite disciples of the sages expound for him. If he was used to reading scriptures, he read, and if not, they read it for him. So you can see the absolute bias and lies that these rabbis uh, invented and made up horse trash about the Sadducees of the first century. Uh, it's a complete joke, uh, according to every scholar, even Jewish scholars today, unless they're religious in nature or something. Yeah, uh, it, it's complete horse trash. We know for a historically proven fact that in the first century, uh, Jews, especially uh, the Sadducees, would have never been embarrassed by a tradition which said that they used a Roman form of execution like crucifixion. Um, they had a more realistic or pragmatic understanding of these things than the Jews or the rabbis of the second and third centuries and, and going forward. Um, you know, they had a realistic understanding. Look, this is our situation. The Romans rule here. The, we have these governors, these uh, Pontius Pilate. We we do we take what we can get. We do what we have to do to get things done and, and survive. So yeah, they they knew that the Romans in the time of Jesus were in charge of capital punishment. The Romans killed people by crucifixion. Not embarrassment. Not a contradiction in scripture at all. It's totally explainable. Uh, just as the Gospels predict. There's no tension here. Jews who have an issue here are just biased and foolish, and they don't understand the history of what it was like back then. Um, so yeah, that that's what I'm going to say there. Um, but again, it's important. Look, this uh, notion, again, hints that this oral tradition originated about Jesus being crucified prior to 70 AD when the rabbis started consolidating, entrenching, and enforcing, and certainly before the 2nd century AD, um, forcing this understanding of stoning for these crimes. Only stoning, no crucifixions. All right, so a third problem uh, with the core tradition itself, and this is the most important issue that we need to be aware of because it actually threatened to draw many more people to revere Jesus. And that's the charge of sorcery specifically, that first charge that uh, goes to Jesus. And it, this implies Jesus had real supernatural powers. And this is a huge issue because rabbinic law, that uh, didn't prescribe the death penalty for magic tricks carried out by illusionists, people that didn't have real powers, but they were tricksters, hucksters, con artists, um, thieving little wretches that did magic tricks, and they were known as illusionists. You didn't get the death penalty for that by the rabbis, but Jesus, for being accused of a sorcerer or doing sorcery, says, no, he's got real powers. Obviously, they ascribe those powers to Satan or Beelzebub or demons or something like that. And that's much more serious. You die for that in the second century. Essentially, second century rabbis made a very clear distinction between real and imaginary magic. It's not what these funny skeptics over on SNS think. You know, people like David Johnson or Darren Lute, who are just ignorant of the history, pretend that all ancient people were just mindless morons who didn't understand the difference between magic and real supernatural powers. Um, no, they understood quite clearly the difference between natural law and supernatural events and that sort of thing. And that's why only certain events counted as signs for them. 
Um, I'm remembering a debate I had with David Johnson on Skeptics and Seekers based on Messianic Prophecy Part 1, where I'm going over the virgin birth and God is saying, okay, I'm going to promise you a supernatural sign from the heights of heaven to the depths of Sheol. Ask me anything and I'll give it to you to prove uh, my prophecy to you. And David was trying to say, well, the Jews were stupid. They didn't. They thought rain was a miracle. They thought everything was a miracle. Complete rubbish. Only a fool would believe that. He's lying when he says that. They clearly understood these rabbis, clearly, and uh, biblical scholars in the days of Jesus and ordinary people, they all understood the clear difference between real supernatural powers and imaginary magic tricks. They, they knew the difference. Um, some were more sophisticated than others, obviously, at recognizing illusions. Um, but yeah, there, there was this clear distinction that was, was made by people. So for example, we have an example here. Rabbi Abba B. Abu, he reported, quote-unquote, I myself saw an Arabian traveler take a sword and cut up a camel. Then he rang a bell and the camel arose. Um, Rabbi Hia saw through this, though. Was any blood or uh, dung left behind? If not, it was merely an illusion. This is in the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 67b. You know, there are two people doing something. One person doing it will die. The other person doing it will live. What's the distinction? One's using supernatural, demonic, satanic powers. The other, to do something truly miraculous, supernatural or amazing. The other one is um, just using magic tricks. He's a huckster. He doesn't deserve to die. Um, and that he, he'll live for his despite his sins. Um, so yeah, you get the picture here. There, there was this clear distinction. It's not as straightforward as, oh, the people were just superstitious idiots back in Jesus' day and they just mindlessly believed stuff. Don't believe a fundy lay skeptic. They're the ones that just mindlessly believe stuff today. Um, you know, they read infidels.org and just pretend they think they know stuff. However, despite what we're saying here, um, in the second century, again, this is suggestive of date, because in the second century and in the later part of the first century, believe it or not, the Jews began to become, soften a little bit towards the invoca invocation of supernatural sorcery and magical powers and stuff like that. And we have archaeological proof. I mean, we found actual amulets and incantation bowls surviving from the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. Um, some of these contain the name of Jesus, um, along with mainly Jewish names, such as the angels named in First Enoch, for example. Um, this practice of using spells, you know, saying like, I conjure you by the God of the Hebrews, even the Gentiles, we're, we're invoking the Hebrew God and stuff like that in the second century. So, yeah, the, the synchronistic nature of these inscriptions makes it possible that Gentiles liked to use Jewish holy names. But the presence of so many Jewish names and even rabbinic formula makes it certain that Jews were also among those who used them. So basically, in the, there was a different Sitzim Lieben in the second century among popular level Jews where invoking sorcery had more of a, a less of a negative connotation to it in the diaspora than it did prior to 70 AD in Jerusalem, in uh, Judea and stuff like that when they had their holy land and under their control. Uh, so yeah, in, in prior to 70 AD in the first century, the verdict that Jesus' miracles were quote-unquote sorcery would have been regarded as a far more 
heinous condemnation. The people weren't into pagan sorcery. It was us and them. They didn't do that. They didn't use amulets or spells or incantations. But by the time of the early 2nd century, a lot of Jews were starting to say, well, let's do it. We don't have the same authority. Now we're living amongst these Gentile pagans in the diaspora. We don't have our own nation anymore. Um, so they, they became a little bit more positively associated with these kind of magic sorceries and stuff like that. So we can tell that this utter condemnation from sorcery suggests that, again, the origin is prior to 70 AD. Um, reflect the popularity of magical amulets that was in Palestine uh, in the later period um, when Jews had become enamored with magical spells and stuff. So yeah, it's interesting that by the time of the second century, Jews stopped becoming interested so much with the source of the healing power. Is it God or El Shaitan or Satan? Uh, it was more just about the power itself. And again, this is an oversimplification, but I'm just saying there is this a trend in this direction among common Jews. Um, and it's in this context, the fact that Jesus was convicted of sorcery became a dangerous enticement. If the, if the tradition originated in the second century when this was going on, and then a rabbi, the anonymous rabbi or some rabbi came up with, the, invented this tradition in the second century, oh yeah, Jesus, he was a sorcerer. Well, that would have enticed the people of Israel. They would have went, oh, I like I, I like my amulets. I like sorcery. Jesus was a sorcerer. Maybe I'll look into this Christianity thing. That sounds good. They wouldn't have done that. So again, this proves that this originated well in the first century prior to 70 AD, uh, probably when there is this strong condemnation among all Jewish people. Uh, no, amulets, spells, that's for the pagans. We're in the nation of Israel, God's holy nation. Uh, God is going to redeem us. We're not in the diaspora being influenced by pagans. We're, well, there was the diaspora, but I mean, we're not, our nation hasn't been totally destroyed in destroying our, our dreams. We still have hope in Yahweh that he will come and save us from the Romans and all this stuff. Um, so it just fits the Sitzim Lieben of the prior to seven, early first century better than later times when, um, you know, just inventing the charge of sorcery um, that actually would have enamored the people toward Jesus. They would have said, oh, he is. Okay, maybe I should become a Christian then. Um, so so that's a, another indicator we need to be aware of here. Okay, so obviously we've raised some of these problems, some of the problems in the fuller text, some problems related to the historical core or kernel. So now uh, this is where some of the explanatory additions are said to come in to solve some of these tensions, some of these difficulties or tensions in the tradition itself. Now, at this point, I'm going to skip over that. But if you're interested in that, uh, basically, I'll, I'll go to my blog site and I've linked to Dr. David Instone Brewer's article. Uh, it's uh, take a read of section eight. Uh, it's got a lot of good stuff starting on page. What page is it? Uh, page uh, 287 all the way through page 291 and you can get the details there i think it's quite brilliant as to what elements would have been added why how how it makes sense uh in dr Anson brewer does a great job of explaining why the later rabbis would have added little bits to try and correct or solve or help uh ease the tension in these different areas but for our purposes it's it's related specifically to the dating of the earliest core tradition here the tradition that says on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged 
on the charges of sorcery and enticing the people of Israel. That's the core. And uh, okay, so, so let's kind of summarize our findings here. So what have we found? So basically the traditions about the trials of Jesus and his disciples, um, which were ultimately censored from the Babylonian Talmud in Sanhedrin 43a, uh, were brought into the Talmudic discussions early in the 3rd century, 220 AD at the earliest, in its current written form. And those uh, writings or that traditions were removed from the written text in the 15th and 16th centuries AD due to Christian persecution and censorship. Uh, through the external evidence test, this gives us independent witnesses um, that the earliest core of the tradition was very probably on the eve of Passover, they hung Jesus of Nazareth for sorcery and enticing Israel um, into idolatry. That's it. That's what we can prove was the original tradition, minimally was the original tradition. Um, the rest of it is either a question mark or, uh, you know, because it's not provable, or we can prove the opposite, that it was probably a later edition, was not part of the original, um, such as we covered with uh, the char third charge of Jesus being misleading, for example. There are certain contradictions, even in the earliest written sources, um, whereby the anonymous rabbi who wrote first wrote down this tradition in the year 220 AD or thereabouts, just assumes they're authoritative and uses rabbi rabbinic formula formula that are indicative of the Tanaim period between 70 and 200 AD, proving that this tradition oral tradition dates at least to the second late second century AD or earlier, back to the time of Jesus in 30 AD, perhaps. Um, beyond that, we know that the order of the charges in the core tradition, you know, sorcery and then enticing the people. This is contradictory to the established rabbinical order of the 2nd century and late 1st century, the way it should be read. It contradicts Deuteronomy, the Mishnah, the Tosetta, and consequently everything in the Talmuds, where it says they have to always, there's not a single exception to this, they're always discussed in the order of enticing and then sorcery after the fact. Um, so it's weird. This is the only place where it's sorcery and then enticing. And that's indicative of a very early date of tradition prior to 70 AD. Uh, and it's not a Pharisaic or rabbinic or a halakha, legalistic tradition. It seems to fit best with a Sadducean origin, perhaps being a trial script from the trial records when Caiaphas, the Sadducee, was in charge of the Sanhedrin court and trying Jesus himself. That seems to be the simplest explanation here and make and fits the data very good. Um, what's interesting is that the reverse order here, as opposed to the common order, it's found in all three sources which contain this tradition. And it's this consistent reversal that suggests that these changes were based on the original tradition concerning the trial itself. Um, it's not some later screw up by a rabbi in the mid to late first century or sometime in the second century or something like that. Additionally, the origin of this tradition cannot be traced to rabbis interacting with or copying Christians or Christian sources. So for example, the gospels say that Jesus was convicted of blasphemy 
by the Jews and of treason by the Romans. This is Matthew 26, verse 65, Mark chapter 14, verse 64, Luke chapter 23, verse 2, for example, in the synoptics. So for the gospel writers, these were the most significant charges, um, basically because they confirmed the what the gospels themselves were trying to show. Um, that Jesus was divine and a king. The Gospels don't represent blasphemy as a charge in the arrest warrant, but as a charge that was introduced during the trial. Uh, so again, Mark chapter 14, verses 60 to 64, or Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 to 65 on that front. Um, so yeah, the, the original charge in these Gospel accounts concerned destroying the temple, and that may have been an initial piece of evidence for the charge of enticing Israel into the new religion. But again, it's unlikely to make the reader infer that this was the charge brought against Jesus. Their main emphasis is blasphemy and treason in the Christian sources. It's only the Jews that focus on this weird reversed order of sorcery and enticing the people. So yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very unlikely that cr talking to Christians and or using the Gospels or Christian sources is the ultimate origination for this oral tradition about Jesus' trial. It came from Jews uh, directly, rabbis and that sort of thing. Additionally, as I said, the charges of sorcery and leading Israel astray are recorded in the Gospels, but not as charges at his trial. And it's important to note that the Gospels, so the Gospels do mention these charges, so it's not like these Jewish things contradict what we have in the Gospels. They're fully consistent and harmonized with it, and Gospels confirmed by this. Um, but it's just not what they emphasized at Jesus' trial. Again, proving it's an independent Jewish, non-Christian-based tradition here. What, what's also uh, weird, again, the origin of this tradition is also very unlikely to be rabbinic in the late 1st century or, or, or 2nd centuries, it's not rabbinic, nor is it Pharisaic either. Um, so even going beyond 70 AD, it's, it's not from the Pharisees, even though it has been preserved in the rabbinical literature. And we know this, look, a rabbinic author or their Pharisee, Pharisaic predecessors would cite the charges in the order found in Torah and the rabbinical halakha. So this reverse order proves it's got to be Sadducees or a different branch of Judaism um, and based on the other factors, not respecting the regulations and that sort of thing, it's, it's again reflecting a different branch of Judaism, such as the Sadducees. Uh, additionally, rabbinic traditions and the major Pharisaic schools tried very hard to dissuade people from working on Passover Eve. So they wouldn't have invented a tradition which said that, you know, they decided to try Jesus on this date on an ad hoc basis for no reason. And even if the tradition merely reflected the fact that the trial actually occurred on Passover Eve, the author of the tradition, had they been rabbinic or of the Pharisaic school, they could have easily glossed over this and just simply said, look, uh, Jesus' trial happened before Passover. That would have been telling the truth, but it wouldn't have offended their audience. You didn't have to say Passover Eve. Why would they specify Passover Eve knowing it would be offensive? The answer is because they didn't. Um, they didn't care. It was preserved. This oral tradition or uh, this came from a different branch of Judaism. It came from the Sadducees, not from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees just preserved this tradition as is. It was the official record, even though it went contrary to their own halakha or legalistic teachings. What's more, 
Um, Passover Eve was not kept as a holy day by all of the disparate factions which made up Judaism before 70 AD only. So again, this is strong of the, the dates, right? After 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, this, the temple and all that, the Jews became united as a group of people under the Pharisees. They took over and rabbinic Judaism was born. So yeah, a, a tradition that we have no reason to doubt says that those in Galilee avoided work all day, while those in Jericho allowed work all day. Jews were different, depended where you were from, what type of Jew you were. So yeah, those in Judea, uh, some in Judea uh, allowed work until noon on Passover Eve. Um, so it, it, it all depends. There's a whole bunch of different regulations available in terms of working on Passover Eve. So, so again, this is all indicating, look, it's probably the Sadducees or the priests that they were more generally relaxed about Passover Eve compared to other groups. They're the most likely group. Plus, they were the ones in power, power with Caiaphas and that sort of thing and Anas as the high priest, the one who persecuted satanically our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Um, so it's all fitting here. Another interesting thing uh, that we know about from the Babylonian Talmud as well is that a large number of priests at the time of Jesus lived in Jericho. And it's very likely that Judea was influenced more by the, as a whole, was influenced more by the Sadducees than by the Pharisees. So this is, again, what makes it likely that the original tradition about Jesus' trial came not only before 70 AD, but from a Sadducean source rather than a Pharisaic one. So... Uh, there, there's um, evidence on this on this point, I think, suggesting this. What's more, um, it's worth asking about the motivation. Why was this tradition created? Well, as, as a piece of fiction, obviously it would convey very little interest to Jews. There'd be no point in making it up. Um, no, it was a matter of public knowledge that Jesus was executed. And the Jewish world would have obviously liked to forget this rather than be reminded about this false prophet who caused them so much trouble and everything like that. Um, so yeah, if, if someone had cre created out of whole cloth this tradition to warn would-be messiahs or something, then they obviously would have admit, omitted all the embarrassing facts about the date and mode of his execution. And they would probably have admitted the charge of sorcery, omitted the charge of sorcery as well. Um, you know, principle of it, criterion of embarrassment, as historians and biblical scholars like to use, this is embarrassing for the Pharisees, and especially as we get later on after, in the late first century after 70 AD, uh, and especially by the second century when the rabbis have firmly established their regulations for every Jew on the planet. Um, so it's, it's uh, very, very unlikely that... Um, this would be the case that Pharisees would be responsible or rabbis would just make this up. Uh, no, you'd be a fool to believe that. It's proven beyond reasonable doubt, I would say, that that's not the case. Um, but yeah, I think we can prove that it's probably a, a tradition going back to a different branch of Judaism, like the Sadduc Sadducees, who a priori would be the best fit because they were the ones in power in the time of Jesus Bet before 70 AD and that sort of thing. Um, from the time of Jesus to 70 AD, they were the ones in charge of Judea the, and, and that sort of thing. They were more influential than the Pharisees. The, so, yeah, since they're the most influential, they're probably the source of this tradition. Obviously, it also has traditions about uh, the charges and stuff which contradict the Pharisaic 
things and would have been very embarrassing for later fair for Pharisees and later rabbis uh, in the way that it's done. And especially in the second century, they would have admitted the charge of sorcery because uh, after 70 AD, when the Jews were scattered and that started interacting with pagans by the late first century and, and second century there, uh, the Jews were getting influenced by pagans and they liked magic. They liked spells. They liked using supernatural powers to get whatever they wanted on little incantations and stuff like that. They didn't care whether the power came from Satan or God. They didn't ask those questions like they did back in Jesus' day. They just said, give me what I want. I want healing or I want this guy to be cursed to do it for me. That's it. Um, so if, if uh, somebody... If a rabbi just made this up at those t later times, this tradition, well, then that would attract the people. They would, the Jews would be like, "Oh, well, I like sorcery. Jesus was a sorcerer. Cool, I like Jesus. I'm gonna, I'm gonna convert to Christianity." And that would have backfired spectacularly on the rabbis. So yeah, t basically taking look, taking all these factors into consideration, Occam's razor. The simplest solution is that probably. This tradition originates from the actual charge sheet itself for the trial of Jesus. That Sadducee and Source from Caiaphas and his buddies on the Sanhedrin court at the time of Jesus in 30 AD. Um, yeah, this, this basically explains how it carried enough authority to ensure that all the sources that we have, external sources, maintain this weird reverse order of the charges. Remember, it's just a martyr. Uh, two other places, Josephus, in his testimonium about Jesus, has this reverse order. Very interesting. Why would they all screw up in that way? Well, it's because it's from the original charge sheet from Caiaphas. He was a Sadducee. He didn't give a tinker's darn about Pharisaic tradition of the, about the order of the charges having to be the opposite way to be consistent with Deuteronomy and stuff like that. Uh, no, they was much more liberal. The Sadducees didn't give a, a darn tootin' about that stupidness. Um, but, yeah, so so then the Pharisees had to pick it up. Well, this is the official record. It has the authority. We've got to just record it as is, whether we like it or not, whether it fits our theology or not. Uh, so that's the simplest solution. It seems that the hypothesis that this is the act, reflecting the actual charge sheet, this historical kernel, um, from the trial of Jesus by the Sadducees themselves on the Sanhedrin court. That's the most probable answer, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, just look, the, the least difficult historical hypothesis is that the earliest course of the censored tradition of Jesus' trial came from the time of Jesus itself. And succeeding generations felt that they couldn't change it, despite difficulties being presented with the wording for them and their theology um so so yeah what happened instead later editors in later centuries they simply added explanatory phrases to it during the later half of the second century um to help readers understand the meaning of the tradition and make sense of it in light of further developments over the centuries in rabbinic this is the simplest explanation and the most probable or best explanation that we have again it's not an ironclad case i mean we have to admit that there's some element uh, of vagueness here and, and that sort of thing and we're having to make inferences based on word order or, or stuff like that so i'm going to give it i think i would say i'm 57 percent convinced that this uh, tradition is authentic 
at least in its historical kernel, as Dr. David Ingstone Brewer argues for, and probably therefore proves that a minimal historical Jesus existed and was crucified by the Sanhedrin court, in part with this working with the Sanhedrin court on the charges of sor- having miracles or sorcery and um, you know, enticing people to believe in him as the Lord our God, as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. So that's my take on this rabbinic text. So again, yeah, it's it's not absolutely certain, uh, but still a cumulative case. Let's take what we can get. Anything above 50%, I'll take it. So I think that this is a bit stronger than Lucian of Samosota. Um, it, it's still got a lot of speculation in it. It's still got a lot of tentativeness uh, to some of the arguments that are we're doing with respect to the dating and and speculating about who its source would be based on internal factors. So based on that, uh, 57% is what I assigned this. Um, All right, so what does that mean overall uh, in terms of our case for the existence of the minimal historical Jesus? So this completes all of our non-Christian sources. And remember, all scholars with PhDs, regardless of atheist, Jewish, Christian, whatever they are, they all agree um, that the best sources, the most persuasive, the sources that prove beyond all reasonable doubt that Jesus really existed as a historical figure um, is from the uh, Gospels, from the Christian New Testament. It's absolutely proven. Uh, And again, uh, at some point in the future, maybe we'll get into those types of arguments and, and show that um, on future shows. But yeah, just the Christian evidence is the strongest and proves beyond all reasonable doubt. You're an utter fool, an unreasonable, irrational fool if you say Jesus doesn't exist, just given the Christian evidences. And that's not to mention the extra-biblical, outside of the Bible, we additionally have Christian sources from the early church fathers, again, proving that Jesus, a minimal historical Jesus probably existed. But I just want to emphasize here that just the New Testament data alone is what biblical scholars, historians, uh, Jewish scholars, they all admit this is the best. And this absolutely refutes Jesus mythicism in and of itself. But that's a debate for another day. The fact is, here, we've proven, and I'm going to show in a moment, that we've proven beyond reasonable doubt, forget the Christian sources, with the non-Christian sources, the positive evidences from non-Christians, you know, ancient pagan and Jewish historians, uh, an ancient satirist, Lucian of Samosota, the two archaeological proofs uh, from the Nazareth inscription and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and now from the rabbinic, the Jew, religious Jews, the rabbin, rabbis or the rabbinical texts, uh, at least with this trial text, these all together prove that it's beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus existed. So remember, uh, in part three, we ended our total probability that the minimal historical Jesus existed, given all of the four evidences, Josephus, five evidences, Josephus, Tacitus, Uh, Josephus had those two quotes. Um, And then in part two, Lucian of Samosoto, which was very weak, around 55%. Then in the part three, we did the Nazareth inscription and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And we got a combined total using Bayes' theorem of 94.85% proven that Jesus existed, or the minimal historical Jesus existed, based on that evidence in isolation. Now, if we throw in 57% from this rabbinical text that we studied in this part, oh goodness, 
Um, remember, I artificially define proven beyond reasonable doubt for me is anything that's 95.01% or higher uh, probability of happening, that's proven beyond reasonable doubt. So you can be, that's just an arbitrary definition. It's just how I kind of understand plausibility and uh, reasonable doubt and stuff like that. So if you have a 5% doubt, then you can still be reasonable. But if you have a 4.99%, you're unreasonable or something. Those are unreasonable doubts. Again, it's an artificial thing, but I think it makes sense and it's true to what we usually mean in courts when we say you have to prove something beyond reasonable doubt. You know, it's more than 95% certain. Um, but yeah, anyway, so we add the 57% to the 94.85% that we had in the end of part three. And our final total for all of the positive evidences from non-Christian sources in isolation is 96.06%, proven beyond reasonable doubt. Incredible. Um, now, obviously, again, that's in isolation. Next time, I'm going to be looking at, that's not even including any of the Christian sources, either biblical or extra-biblical. And crucially, it's also not even considering the negative evidences that Jesus mythicists like to say, well, this proves that Jesus didn't exist. He probably didn't exist because he's, and he was a myth. Uh, and that's what I want to take into account in our next, next time in our next series, um, are the negative evidences that mythicists present in favor of their view. You know, evidences that purport to show, well, probably a minimal historical Jesus didn't exist. He was a myth the whole time. And then when we factor that into the equation, um, it's, well, you know, how's that going to affect it? Is it going to lower it be below the 96% level or not? Are any of them going to be successful? So yeah, that's what you can look forward to next time. So yeah, that's it. That covers it. That's it for today's uh, show on Jesus Mythicism Refuted, part four. Uh, just so you know what I have coming up next time. So I I am running low on the SNS archive shows. I have a couple more to post up, at least a couple more that I'm in. Um, and I have some guest shows lined up in March if they all come through. Um, we'll see about that in April and then in the summertime and that sort of thing. So we'll see what happens with those. Um, but in the meantime, I'm getting excited because I'm starting to get to the point where I can really work on what I want to work on the most, which is, you know, isn't just guest shows or, or isn't just like debate type shows on Pora or debate type shows on SNS and stuff like that. Those are great. I really like those. I like being able to ch change up the format when it's when it's convenient and stuff. Uh, but most importantly is my solo shows and presenting my cases for various arguments. And now that I'm going to be starting to be freed up um, after this semester, at least, hopefully, uh, I can start working on new solo shows and changing up. So Jesus Mythicism, I've been working on that for a while. I think I'll do one more part because I have to address the negative evidences, the pro-mythicist arguments and refute those or see how well they stack up against it. But after that, I'll weigh these non-Christian positive evidences against the negative evidences for mythicism and come up with a final total that Jesus mythicism is true uh, based on that. And rather than getting into Christian sources about Jesus mythicism, I'm going to transition to tackling two for one. I want to do a resurrection, my case, historical case for the resurrection. Um, I've, I have never done this yet. So 
it'll kill two birds with one stone. Obviously, if I can prove Jesus died and rose from the dead historically, well, that proves that a minimal historical Jesus existed. But even better, that the Christian Jesus was the minimal, minimal historical Jesus who existed, who died and rose for our sins. So that's my plan to kind of say, be more efficient. Obviously, I can come back to a Jesus mythicism proper and try to prove Jesus' ministry or his birth or baptism and stuff like that in later shows. Uh, but yeah, after I do the negative ones, um, sometime in this, after this semester is finished, I'm going to take a break from the Jesus mythicism. I want to focus on the resurrection. I also have plans to do near-death experiences, solo shows on, on, on that I think will be interesting. I want to do further my research on the existence of God series. That's very important for premise, establishing premise one that I've been delaying because I have to write out a whole chapter on the ontological argument. But that said, what I'll do is I'll switch. I uh, had a fan in the audience ask me, well, can you do arguments for atheism? Well, okay, I've already got something, one of the arguments for atheism already written out thanks to my school the, on the hiddenness of God. So maybe I'll do a few shows on the hiddenness of God argument and start with that. So yeah, I've got, and obviously I'll be continuing with my Shroud series. That'll probably be the next solo show I put out sometime in March for you guys. But yeah, lots of good things. Dr. Asha Lancaster Thomas and hopefully Jack Symes will be coming on. David Kemble Cook will be coming on again with the problem of evil. I want to reach out to a couple Muslim YouTubers to see if we can have a talk about Islam based on... And um, another fan made a recommendation about a Christian apologist who targets Islam and maybe bring him on if these guys agree and that sort of thing. So yeah, lots, lots, of, stuff's in the, lots of stuff in the work that I hope I can fit in at this busy time and hopefully school won't interfere with my ability to, to get all that done but other than that i will shut up and have a great week everybody thank you for listening i hope this was helpful